Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we are going to talk about seven big mistakes that I've made in the fitness industry. All right, and unlike previous shows, this is going to be pure, unadulterated content. No commercials, no fluff, just information that I feel is going to help make you a better trainer, a better coach, and potentially a better human being as well. All right, because let's be honest, very few people like to admit their mistakes and even fewer like to really talk about them and own them, right, and put them out there in the world. And man, I'm more than willing to raise my hand. I am a perfectionist OCD type personality. And so for probably the first 30, 35 years of my life, I was living or trying to live up to this impossible standard for myself. And so it was hard because anytime I failed, that was like a personal reflection on me as a human being. Like I'm a bad human because I made mistakes or because I had failures. And it wasn't until I learned how to distance myself from those mistakes and those failures that I could learn from them, that I could reflect upon them and that I could ultimately grow and evolve. So that's my goal for you guys here today. I want to help you grow and evolve because let's be real, it's getting harder to be real and authentic because everybody and their mother is trying to profile and pose on the Instagram, show how awesome their life is, look at my car, look at my boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband, kids, whatever, you know? It's really hard to be open and vulnerable about yourself when every single day you're looking at somebody else's highlight reel on the gram, okay? So that's why I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna put it out there. I'm gonna air some of the biggest mistakes that I've made because ultimately my goal is to help you take some of these lessons, learn it, apply it to yourself, and hopefully help you avoid some of the pitfalls that I made along the way. All right, so like I said, no fluff, let's jump into this. Number one, one of the biggest mistakes that I made early on in my career was not showing up on time. And unfortunately, I learned this from people in positions of authority above me a lot of times growing up. You know, I had people that I worked with that I looked up to personally, and they would show up late. They would show up unprepared, whether that was for work, whether that was for training sessions, whether that was for meetings, and not to give me an out, but those were people that I learned from. You know, I learned those things from them, and that's that's how young people do learn. You know, they model people above them or people they look up to and respect. So one of the things that really changed this for me Obviously, opening a gym was a big deal. I was always there 15 minutes early. But I think something that really tuned me into this was when I trained Roy Hibbert back in the day because Roy and I had a standing training session, 10 a.m., Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And, man, I was there early. You know I was going to be there early. But Roy was always sitting there 9.45 a.m., listening to music, getting his mind right. So when he walked in, he was on point and ready to go, right? You know, that's what a professional does. A professional shows up, they're on time, they're ready to go, they're prepared for whatever it is they have in front of them, whether it's a consulting call, whether it's a training session, whether you got everything laid out for an assessment, regardless of what you do in life, showing up on time, showing up for a a nine o'clock session at nine o'clock, you are late, my friend, I hate to tell you. And this was kind of reaffirmed to me here lately because anytime I have to go to the basketball barn, it's a haul. 
not only is it probably a 40 to 45 minute drive, but on top of that, I have to go over there at rush hour and there's literally no good way to get there. So the first couple of days I was getting there, you know, like two, three minutes early and every day I get there and this was only like two or three sessions, Dakota Mathias, who's a guy I've worked with for the last two off seasons now, this dude comes from Lafayette right? And if you don't know Indiana geography, I'm guessing it's at least a 45 minute drive for Dakota, maybe an hour. All right. So for a nine o'clock session, that dude's there at 830 or 840. So he's, I mean, he's leaving an hour before he has to get there and he's still there 20 to 30 minutes early. So like, that's what it means to be a professional. And that's why, you know, I just straight up told him, I'm like, look, dude, I'm going to be here, maybe not as early as you get here, but I'm always going to be here 10 to 15 minutes early so that when it's time to start your session, I'm prepped and I'm ready to go. Okay, so just keep this in the back of your mind. Here's the lesson for this one. On time is really 15 minutes early. So when it's go time, you're ready to go. You got your teeth brushed, your hair combed, your swagger is on point, your sessions are laid out, the gym is set up, it's ready to go. All right, and if on time is 15 minutes early, I hate to tell you, my friends, but on time is really late. It's just bare minimum in my world. And this is what we tell our interns. This is what we tell our staff. If you want to be a true professional in this game, you got to be there 10 to 15 minutes early, bells on, ready to go. All right. So that's number one. Big mistake, not showing up on time. Number two, not getting coaching and mentoring sooner in my own life. And Again, giving you guys kind of personal reflection on my part. When I was coming up, I had a lot of people that I looked up to. You know, I I was kind of like this lost puppy, especially for about the first five, six years of my career because, man, there were so many great people out there, people that I worked with in the biomechanics lab at Ball State, people that I worked with in the gym as a volunteer strength coach, um, people I looked up to when I got into the working world. And, you know, the sad thing for me was I didn't feel like any of them truly wanted to mentor me. You know, I don't know. I don't think it was a personal thing. I don't think maybe they were where they needed to be personally, professionally. Maybe they didn't have the time. Like, let's be honest. A lot of people just don't have the time to take people under their wing. So for me, I filled in those gaps as best I could. I took it upon myself to learn as much as possible because I was just, I had this thirst for knowledge as a young man in this industry. And man, I did whatever I could. I read tons of articles. Um, Again, to date myself, I was watching the old VHS tapes. You know, I'd buy VHS tapes from Ian King and the Swiss seminars. Anything I could get my hands on, I would would do. And I attended courses, you know, even when I didn't have money. I always tell the story of, I read very early on, I think it was in 2003 when I first got a job, I read this book and I don't even remember the book, but it just said, you need to spend about 10% of your income on continuing education. I think it said save 10% and put 10% away for continuing education purposes and personal growth. And so that was something that I took and I applied and I mean, I had no money back then, but huge investment in myself. Okay. Now all that was great, but it wasn't until I found true mentors and I really sought people out to coach me that my progress truly exploded. I mean, I can't give this guy enough credit, but when I met Bill Hartman, he was the first person that really challenged me professionally. He was the one that, you know, forced me to start thinking like, okay, 
Am I just reciting and regurgitating what other people have told me or what they've written? Or am I really owning this information myself? So Bill is somebody that more so than even a master's degree could ever give me. He challenged my thought process and he challenged me to constantly be able to back up what I was saying. So he was a huge one for me. Another one was Joel. When I started getting serious about conditioning, Joel Jameson was huge for me. Um, just really, again, challenging my thought process. And we'll talk more about Joel and my conditioning evolution later on. A third mentor, and even though I don't get to spend as much time with him as I'd like, Lee Taft has been huge for me with regards to better understanding speed. And it's been, man, like a seven-year process now. But you know, when I'm coaching guys in the barn, when I'm coaching my soccer girls or my football guys, now I just see things in real time. I don't, I don't see it nearly as well as Lee probably does or some of the great track coaches, but man, I see a lot and we can make really positive changes in a very short period of time. So man, I had great mentors. It just took me a little bit longer to get going there. I had great business mentors. I had people like Alan Cosgrove when I got started, Pat Rigsby. I've got Shannon Simmons who helped me out with the profit first stuff. But here's the big lesson for this. I talked to you guys about it in last week's show, but you need a mentor or coach to give you a filter and to provide context, all right? The filter piece is something you can't skip over. You have to have a filter. Otherwise, especially nowadays, information is just, it's rampant, it's everywhere. You can go to Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, websites, courses, like if you just want to learn how to squat, (laughs) think about how many different viewpoints you're going to have on how to squat. If you Google how to squat on the internet, you could have an Olympic lifter writing it up. You could have a bodybuilder. You could have a power lifter. I mean, there's a bazillion different ways to learn how to squat. So if you don't have a filter, right, if you don't have a lens to look through, how do you know who knows what they're talking about? All right. So It's your job to start identifying areas of your life where you want or need to expand, and then you got to seek out coaching. You know, you've got to seek out coaches. I mean, this is why, you know, whether it's online coaching, whether it's mentorship, it's something that I've done for, geez, like 13 years now. It's something that Bill Hartman does. It's something that Pat does for his businesses because this is how you truly break out of whatever rut or plateau you're in. All right, you need somebody to help guide you, okay? So that's number two, not getting coaching and mentoring sooner. Number three, man, I hate to admit this. (laughs) I hate to admit it, but number three, early on, I really thought I knew everything. I'm pretty sure I thought I was the bee's knees when it came to strength and conditioning, posture analysis, whatever the case may be. Man, I really thought I was a lot smarter early on than I actually was. But man, I had I had some things going in my favor, right? Man, I had the master's degree. Let's chalk that up. I did my six years of school, got the fancy piece of paper. I was speaking at local seminars. You know, I was like 24, 25 years old. We were hosting these little seminars at our facility in Fort Wayne. So I was getting small groups, eight to 10. And I cited some research and I knew enough about the squat and the bench and the deadlift. And you know, the big one for me, the thing that really gave me some clout, I was writing for T Nation and Young Bucks and Buckettes. If you haven't been to T Nation before, check it out. It's a pretty decent site. But man, in the early 2000s, it was the bomb. 
it was the bomb and that that's going to date me too saying the bomb but it was such a powerful website like if you weren't around at that point in time it was like this amuse this just amazing evolution we'd gone from muscle and fitness and flex to muscle media 2000 and now all these great authors were coming on to t nation and i was somebody that got to contribute there really in what i consider to be its heyday and its prime okay so things are great man i'm on cloud nine i really think i know what i'm doing and then really the big hit to the ego happens Mike Beistall is a guy that owned the Poliquin Performance Center in Chicago. And Mike says, you know, Mike, I'm a fan of your work. I want you to come up, do a day. So, wow, this is like my first big seminar on my own, right? Like no buffer. I got nobody else going with me. I'm like, oh, dude, I'm about to crush this seminar. And my friends, I think you guys already know, I bombed miserably. It was so bad. I mean, I can't even describe how bad it was. I was unprepared. I'm pretty sure up until the last minute, I was working on my slides. Uh, I didn't have answers to a lot of questions, and we'll talk more about that later on. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but my lack of preparation and my lack of knowing what I didn't know was really, really bad at that point in time. So all in all, it was a massively humbling experience. I learned a lot about myself that day, and I learned a lot about what I needed to do to step up my speaking game, to put on a better seminar, and to be, quite frankly, a better coach and a better trainer, okay? So here's a big lesson, and I think it's somewhat age-related, but you have to be okay with saying, I don't know. When you're a young coach, we talk about profiling and posing, about putting up this front, being really confident, exuding confidence, thinking, man, I know this. I know what I'm doing. But I remember Joe Ken telling this story probably five years ago now. And so Joe had been with the Carolina Panthers for a couple years. And one of his athletes comes up to him and says, hey, coach, what about X, Y, and Z? It could be a training method, nutrition. That doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is, Joe said, you know what, man? I'm sorry, but I don't know the answer to that. But you know what? I do know somebody that's really good. I'm going to talk to him and I'm going to have an answer for you later today. So number one, he admitted that he didn't know, which shows people that, hey, man, you don't know everything and you're willing to admit it. You're not just going to make some bull up (laughs) that's not true or that doesn't make sense. You've admitted, number one, that you don't know everything, which is powerful. But number two, what he did, he sought out an expert, got an answer and texted the dude the answer later that day. So now he's shown he's willing to learn and he's willing to take time out of his day to help his client or his athlete get better, all right? So that's a huge piece of the puzzle, right? You don't have to know everything, but grow your network. Know other people that can help you out, that you can seek out when you need answers. So this comes back to one of my favorite book books of all time, Ego is the Enemy. You gotta put the ego away. When you put the ego away, now you're truly ready to learn, right? And we can take it even a step further. It's not just putting your ego away, but it's being willing and able to question everything that you know. Now this, my friends, this is really deep, okay? So you gotta take some of those deep-seated biases, those deep-seated beliefs, and every now and then you gotta try and break them down. You know, why do you coach the squat the way that you do? Why do you write programs the way that you do? All of a sudden, you know, uh, 
you know, maybe you're a little wishy-washy or maybe you find something that works a little bit better. But here's ultimately what happens. Generally, two things happen. When you start to challenge your own beliefs and you read research that's contradictory to what you believe or you seek out experts that are, you know, talking about opposing viewpoints and they do things differently, one of two things happens. Either, number one, it strengthens your resolve. It stiffens your spine. Right. And you're like, no, okay, I've heard all sides of this. I still believe what I'm doing. And now I believe it even deeper because I've sought out differing opinions and I've still come back to the same conclusion. Or, and this is a powerful one, as we grow, as we evolve, sometimes our stance changes, our perspective changes. And so now maybe we start to change our outlook on things. Okay. So it's very important. Number three, be okay with not knowing or admitting that you don't know everything. Nobody expects you to accept yourself. Number four, big mistake that I made when I was coming up was confusing book smarts with street smarts. And again, this comes back to, you know, early on, I knew a ton of stuff. You know, I had done pretty well in my undergrad. I'd done really well in my master's program. And I was voracious with my learning. I would seek out and learn everything that I could. And, you know, I remember, man, this was probably 2006. Dave Barr, David Barr was a guy that was writing for T Nation. And I literally read pretty much every article that went on T Nation, every single article. And so Dave was writing a lot of stuff and he had a really unique viewpoint on nutrition. So we were hanging out at this Swiss seminar and we were talking about an article that he wrote. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I remember you had this little passage and I recited like a sentence and his like brain was blown because it was something he had written like two years before. Okay. So I tended to confuse this idea of knowing stuff with actually being able to use it and apply it. Right. And there's a huge difference. There is a huge difference. And unfortunately I get a lot of kids now, whether it's interns or people at workshops and seminars, I mean, they can recite like super training in full. They know all of like the verbatim or they know all the verbiage and the language. But when it comes down to actually applying it or I get them out on the floor and I ask them to coach something, they can't do it. And this was really, really obvious to me a couple weeks ago. I did my coaching the lower body lifts workshop and I had a gal in, new trainer, and she knew a lot of stuff. I mean, she'd just gone through like the ACE certification and she had all these certs. And But when it came down to it, I really wanted to challenge her. And so, you know, this was hard for her because she knew a lot of stuff, but she hadn't had the time in the trenches. She hadn't been able to apply it yet. So here's the lesson in this. There's a huge gap between theory and application. And I'll be quite honest. If you haven't tried it on yourself or on the people you train, it's really just theory. It's stuff that you've read from other people. And now that uh, I'm thinking about this, I'm reminded of a conversation that Joe Ken and I had. Um, again, Joe's getting a lot of pub today, but Joe was telling me about this guy who was like, you know, talking, talking, talking to him. And Joe just stopped him after a while. And he's like, look, dude, I read that book too. Like, don't tell me what that person says. Tell me what you say. And that's a powerful statement, right? Like when I hear somebody talking, a lot of times I've read enough stuff, 
You know, I know if somebody's just, oh, that's Boo Schexnader talking, or that's Charlie Francis talking, or that's Louis Simmons talking. Like, I know what they know. I've read their stuff. Tell me what you know. Okay. So here's what I tell young coaches all the time. And if you work with young coaches, if you mentor young coaches or interns, this is really important. There's simply no substitute. There is no fast track. And there is no hack to time in the trenches and getting reps. That is experience. You can't fake that. You can't speed that up, right? And look, guys, I'll be honest. I've been doing this close to 20 years now. I've been coaching for a little bit. Not like uh, not like Derek Hansen, not like Bill Hartman, not like Alvar Meal, who's probably closing in on 60 years now. I haven't been doing it that long. But I've seen a lot of stuff in 20 years. And I've seen a lot of lifts. But, you know, I basically had to start the cycle over. When it came to speed training, I didn't really get started on that until 2012. So now I've been doing that seven years. Now my eyes are getting a lot better. Are they Dan Pfaff's eyes? Absolutely not. But I'm learning some things. So this is something you have to remind yourself. There is no replacing time and repetition. You've got to put the time in. You've got to get the reps in because that's how you're going to continuously grow and evolve your coaching eye. All right. So don't confuse book smarts with street smarts. They're not one and the same. Number five, big mistake, training everyone like me. And I'll be honest, I really thought that I was objective about this. I really thought that I could put my training biases aside because I was a power lifter. You know, I was into powerlifting. When I really caught the bug, it was around 2000, I had graduated from undergrad. I was working as an intern and then as a volunteer strength coach at Ball State, and I realized I was total wuss. <laughs> like, that's probably putting it mildly, but I was just weak. I was a soft, weak individual at that point in time. And so it just made sense to me that if I wanted to become a better coach, I needed some time under the bar. So I joined the powerlifting team at Ball State. And I got super serious about powerlifting because also in undergrad, I was playing like intramural sports that kept me active and I would go and work out, but I'd never dedicated myself to just pure unadulterated strength training. So like anything in my life, OCD perfectionist, I got super serious about it. I was reading every article under the sun. I still have, I believe, a three inch ring binder of every article that Dave Tate and Louis Simmons wrote from about a four or five year time period. Everything that they wrote, I had printed in this binder, right? So I was reading articles. I went, again, this goes back to investing in myself and Con Ed. I went to a West Side Seminar. And I think they were called four seminars then, but Dave Tate was putting them on. So I went to seminars there. So I got coached by Dave went back over a couple of times, trained with Dave and Louie, you know, I was attending meets. So needless to say, I was looking at training through a very powerlifting focused lens. But I thought, thought I was aware of it and that it wasn't influencing me. But my friend, you know where the story's going. It was. <laughs> it was absolutely influencing me. And when I was training athletes, you know, okay, I could rationalize that. Well, they need strength. Every athlete can benefit from some level of strength training, right? 
So yeah, I could rationalize a squat and a bench press and a deadlift. Okay, yeah, whatever, I can rationalize those. But then I had some fat loss clients <laughs> and now I'm still coming back to this. Well, they need to rank, crank up their metabolism, so they need to lift weights, they need to build muscle. Okay, so let's back squat, barbell bench press and deadlift, right? So the lesson here is simple, right? You have to distance your own training and your own biases from the way you program for your clients and athletes, right? Don't fit the square peg in the proverbial round hole. It doesn't work like that. And you have to ask yourself, are you really being objective and training them in a way that's most congruent with their needs and their goals? Because I'll be honest, quite frankly, I was not. And I'd like to think that my training has evolved quite a bit over the years and and I'm much more malleable. I think that's a big piece of it. Just the longer you do this, the more malleable you become, hopefully, the more exposed you become to different training methodologies. And then you can really just try and match up the perfect program with the client or the athlete that's standing in front of you. All right. So don't train everyone like you. Doesn't matter whether you're a bodybuilder, a powerlifter, a athlete, doesn't a strongman, doesn't matter. You know, have that objectivity to say what training program, what exercises are going to work best for the client or athlete standing in front of me. Okay. Number six. This circles back very strongly to my powerlifting days, but early on I put a massive overemphasis on strength. So I, I remember when I was in grad school and my second year I shared a desk with a guy named Eric Dugan. And Eric was a very bright guy. I believe he was working on his PhD at the time. And you know, I'm in the throes of powerlifting. So for me, it's all about strength right? More strength, son, like get as strong as possible. So Eric and I are going back and forth and I'm like, oh, hey, you know, great to meet you. What are you, what are you studying? He's like, um, I'm studying strength. I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. Like, what are you learning about? He's like, well, I think my, my dissertation is going to be on, you know, how much strength is enough for athletes. <laughs> and I, I didn't, I didn't laugh out loud, but in my, my brain, I was just like, laughing out loud because I couldn't get over this thought of, dude, like an an athlete is never strong enough, right? Oh, you squat five? Well, why aren't you squatting six, son? Like, let's get in the gym and get strong, okay? And unfortunately, I probably trained my athletes in this mindset for way too long. And I have this memory of training my girl, K-Dog, Catherine, um, just ridiculously heavy weights for her. You know, she's like ramping up to go into a soccer preseason and I've got her working up to not a one RM, but like 90 and 95% loads, like a week out. Like why, why was I doing that? So I just remember her grinding that out. And then I I had this moment of clarity. I was just like, dude, she's never going to do that on a soccer pitch. She's going to run fast and she's going to jump high. She's going to change direction. Like, what am I doing here? So the more athletes that I trained, the greater a shift in my thought process and in my programming kind of came along for the ride. You know, so now it's not just purely strength, it's speed, it's agility, it's power, it's rate of force development, right? And to kind of show you how full circle this has come, 
when we were training at the barn last summer, we didn't have a ton of equipment, right? We had some perform better kettlebells. We went in pairs from eights to 28s. So really, I don't think anybody squatted over 224s or 228s on a front squat. We had a trap bar. So we had some guys up 275, 315, but nothing massive, right? So, But we saw amazing improvements in their athleticism, in their vertical jump. I mean, I had one guy, I don't think I loaded him heavier than maybe 240 on the trap bar. And I know for a fact he didn't squat over a 16 kilogram kettlebell because his squat was just so jacked up to start and he had knee pain and hip pain. But by gone, this dude put two and a half inches on his vert with this very minimalistic, very basic strength training routine. And so, you know, I still believe in strength and I still believe in strength training for a lot of reasons, whether it's tissue resiliency, whether it's, you know, increasing movement variability, whether it's just teaching them cleaner movement patterns, there's tons of benefits to strength training. But I can also say very clearly, it's not the be all end all. It's one part of a well-rounded physical preparation program. So in this case, don't be like Mike, don't put an overemphasis on strength. It's one physical quality. And you just gotta figure out what percentage of a program needs to be dedicated to it, right? How much does this athlete How much more strength does this athlete need to maximize their performance and their resilience? Last but not least, number seven, when I started off, I was absolutely awful at writing conditioning programs. Like I'm shocked and appalled. I was so bad at this because let's be honest, at least we were called strength and conditioning coaches. I I was not a conditioning coach. I was a strength coach like by Like through and through, I was a strength coach. It was the powerlifting bravado, right? Every powerlifter will say, man, anything over five reps is cardio. (laughs) And I think I really lived by that mindset for quite some time. You know, and and quite frankly, I thought everyone fell into one of two camps. You know, either you didn't need to do cardio because it wasn't really that important. Or if you wanted to do cardio, if you wanted to, you know, whatever, get in shape for any sport, or fat loss or whatever, you needed to do glycolytics. So, I mean, this was so bad because I used to just blast people with glycolytic training. And, you know, I let's be honest, guys, I just, I messed this up so bad. And I still remember the day that Bill first read Joel Jameson's Ultimate MMA Conditioning Book. And he was like, dude, we've been doing this all wrong. I'm like, what? Come on, son, I got this figured out. You know, either you do like no cardio or you work it into your workout or you do 30 on 90 off on the fan bike. Like I got this, like, no, I got this. And then I saw how he was training our intern at the time, TJ Lynch, who was a safety in football and, you know, playing, I think it was like a D2 school in Iowa, but I started seeing his training. I was like, whoa, dude, okay, this is a lot different. And then I saw you know, the changes in TJ's physique. I saw how well conditioned he was, how robust he was. I mean, this dude was doing, I think six on 30 off sled sprints going into camp. He was doing like 50 consecutively without crossing anaerobic threshold. I mean, this guy was a monster. So I'm like, okay, okay. Like even I can see that. Okay. I got to learn this stuff. And so, you know, that's when, 
K-Dog had her her big like off season, right? She was going into her freshman year of college. She's freaking out about passing the conditioning test. And so me and my boy, Eric Otter, sit down and we start fleshing out her off season conditioning program. And it was just so cool because I still remember the text that I got from K-Dog. This is a girl that could probably play a soccer game for 15 to 20 minutes and be gassed prior to us doing this. And within a month of this kind of this kind of work and, and really understanding what proper conditioning was, she's texting me and she's like, Mike, I'm making runs in the 80th, 85th, 90th minute. I have so much gas. And that was four weeks into the program. Okay. So for me as a coach, again, you've got to be well-rounded right? Like everybody's got their thing when they get into this world, right? Maybe it's strength, maybe it's conditioning, maybe it's speed. I don't know, but you've all got your thing and that's great. Hang your hat on that because you got to have something that makes you stand out. But the longer you do this, the more you have to become well-rounded, the more you have to become well-versed in conditioning, speed, agility, strength, power, whatever you're not good at, right? It's like the spokes of a wheel, Right. If you've got one really long spoke and the rest are all jagged and misshaped and short and long, bike's not going to work very well. So for me, I've always tried to make it a goal of for me, I always felt like strength was my strong spoke. It was my long spoke and my wheel. So my job was to start filling out that wheel and making it more well-rounded with all of those weak areas. Okay. So guys, I really hope this has been beneficial. The seven big mistakes that I made. Number one, show up on time, right? Like and showing up on time is 15 minutes early. If you're on time, like nine o'clock session, you're late. Show up 15 minutes early, be prepared, be a pro. Number two, get coaching and mentoring ASAP, right? Find ways to make yourself a better trainer, a better coach, to give yourself the filter that you need to get your skills to the next level. Number three, be okay with not knowing everything, right? Be okay admitting, I don't know. And then seek out people that have those answers that can enlighten you because it's going to make you a better trainer. It's going to make you a better coach. And, you know, like I alluded to with Joe, it's going to build your relationships. It's going to build your rapport with your clients and athletes by admitting that you don't know and then seeking out answers for them. Number four, don't confuse book knowledge with street knowledge. It's not the same. You got to pay your your time, you got to pay your dues in the gym, getting your reps, getting the experience, because there's quite, quite simply, there is no substitute for it. Number five, be aware of your own training biases. You're a power lifter, bodybuilder, strongman, Olympic lifter. Awesome. Awesome. Go in the gym and kill it with what you do, but don't pass those biases off on the, the clients and the athletes that you coach. Number six, Don't overemphasize any one quality. Strength, speed, power, conditioning, they're all awesome. They're all awesome. But if you train athletes, you need well-rounded. Every athlete, every sport's a little bit different, where you dial it up, where you dial it back, but you gotta figure out what's the perfect blend for this person standing in front of me. And last but not least, make it a goal to become a well-rounded program designer, all right? If your R5, your resistance section is like 10 exercises and there's nothing else in your program, probably not the most balanced program, my guy. 
You got to sort that out. You got to become more balanced. And you don't need to use every trick and every tool and every program. That's part of the art of being a great designer. It's knowing when to willfully exclude certain items from your program. But I assure you, the more well-rounded you become, the more tools you have in your toolbox, the greater success you're going to have with every client and athlete that walks through your doors. So my friend, there you have it. Seven big mistakes that I've made in the fitness industry. Love it. Hate it. I hope you've learned something from this show, and I hope you're going to take some of the mistakes that I've made to avoid these pitfalls in your own life. So that does it for this week's episode. Truly hope you enjoyed it. I love and appreciate you, and we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.